My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shut up. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. <laughs> how can we solve fashion's most pressing sustainability issues? Sometimes I feel like there's a lot of finger pointing. You know, we talk about big, bad, polluting, irresponsible fashion with its murky supply chains and dragging its feet on things like paying a living wage and, and then all of the negative environmental and waste impacts. And, you know, we should be drawing attention to those things. But how do we change them? The Global Fashion Agenda is the organisation behind the Copenhagen Fashion Summit, and this year they put out a report called the CEO Agenda 2018, which is all about trying to guide business towards solutions. And that report frames this with the business case for change, arguing that business as usual will, and I quote, not only curb brands' prospects for future growth and profitability, but also mean missing out on opportunities for new customers and innovation. I mean, basically, the fashion industry has to change, not just for the good of people and planet, but for its own health. Now that's good stuff because we know that money talks and when sustainability becomes good business, that's when we start to see a real shift. We make change by different stakeholders coming together with a will and a way, which is where the Copenhagen Fashion Summit comes in. Now that is the most important event on the sustainable fashion calendar and it's happening next week in the Danish capital. I will be there in my role as Vogue Australia's sustainability editor at large, and I'm moderating a panel. It's on the future of transparency, and it features fashion revolutions Carrie Summers, Baptiste Carrier Pradal, who is the vice president of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, Lars Axelson, who is managing director of Arquette. And if you don't know about that brand, it's the newish one out of the H&M stable, and it's all about hypertransparency. We'll also have Rachel Arthur, who is a tech expert from The Current, and we'll share a link to her work, and Paul Van Zyl, who is the man behind Myet. I'll also be going to as many sessions as I can just to learn from some of the most interesting people working in this space and to soak it all up. Organisers liken the summit to the Davos of the fashion industry, and they say it's the nexus for agenda-setting discussions on the most critical environmental, social and ethical issues facing our industry and planet. So this is the table that you want a seat at, and I want to bring you with me. So I will be bringing some special episodes of the podcast to celebrate this year's Copenhagen Fashion Summit, starting with this one. You're going to meet its very engaging CEO and president, Eva Cruz. Eva founded the summit in 2009 to coincide with the United Nations Summit on Climate Change that happened in Copenhagen that year. And we talk a lot about how forward thinking it was to try to bring fashion into this conversation because at that time, it was really rare for businesses to discuss sustainability in public, even if they might be working very hard on it behind the scenes. Eva likes the challenge. <laughs> the daughter of activist parents, she went to a progressive business school called Chaos Pilot, which is also fascinating. You're going to hear all about that. 
She fell into a TV career, which she says she never planned on, but then went on to become a renowned magazine editor. She was instrumental in the creation of the Danish Fashion Institute and Copenhagen Fashion Week in 2005. And she's much loved in the industry for her big ideas and her enthusiasm, and most importantly, for her ability to make change happen. The Summit will be live streaming panels, so make sure you keep in touch with them. You can follow them on Instagram. It's Copenhagen Fashion Summit, all one word. I'll be doing an Instagram takeover for the Virgin Australia Melbourne Fashion Festival. So you can follow them at VAMFF, V-A-M-F-F. And also I'll be covering the event for Vogue Online. So make sure you keep checking the website, vogue.com.au. And now, without further ado, let's meet the woman of the moment, Eva Cruz. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And I will be joining you in Copenhagen. I'm so excited. I mean, this is the key international business event in sustainable fashion and the one that everyone in the industry watches. You have incredible speakers every time. And I'll just rattle through a few because this year we'll be hearing from Stella McCartney, Dame Ellen MacArthur who is absolutely fascinating to me. Graydon Carter, who was, of course, the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair for 25 years, and a host of influential thinkers in sustainability. Eva, what makes the Copenhagen Fashion Summit so special? What draws all these people here? Well, we did the first Fashion Summit back in 2009 when Copenhagen was the host of the UN Climate Summit. And at that time... Um, sustainability, climate changes, um, social responsibility was not really top of the agenda for the fashion industry. And I was looking at the program for the COP15 coming together and I saw all these industries contributing like leaders of many, many different um, private sector industries coming together and nobody from fashion. And at that time, I had realized that the fashion industry in itself is one of the world's largest and it's also one of the world's most resource intensive and it's hugely challenged when it comes to social implications to do with fashion production. And I thought it's strange that Mm -hmm. we didn't come together about this. So what we did is that we um, decided to put together this summit and due to the COP15 that we were kind of riding on the back of the COP15, we were actually able to attract quite a big crowd and even a good number of companies, although it was very difficult to find anyone who could actually really speak to the topic. It just wasn't there yet, was it? Well, if it was, which of course it was for many of the bigger multinational corporations, it was more something you didn't talk about. It was something that you did you know, inside the company, small divisions. But companies like PPR Group, which is now called Caring, was one of the groups that were able to talk. And of course, they come from the luxury segment and uh, you would expect a lot from them, which is also why they are today one of the definite pioneers and leaders in this. And actually also H&M, um, was one of the companies that could take the stage and, and put forward what they were working on, companies like Levi's and some of the big suppliers from China, the Esquel Group, for instance. But other than that, it was very difficult. We had small, super, super small brands who was like more niche, who were able to talk about this. Then over the years, this has developed so rapidly, fortunately. And for many years, we did only the summit every second year because we wanted the agenda to progress. Right. If we did it every year, it didn't go fast enough. We wouldn't have new stuff to um, to talk about when we met. Goodness. But now, since 2016, we're able to do the summits every year. And it is such a draw, like you say. It, it draws everyone here because now I feel this is the biggest trend. That makes it sound a little bit shallow. It isn't, but it's the biggest topic for any business leader in fashion today. And that hasn't got to do with being philanthropic. This is not a philanthropic quest. This is big business. This is how business is done. And any CEO in the industry knows that if they don't jump on the wagon, if they don't look into their companies on how they can improve socially, environmentally, they're going to miss out because this is about resource efficiency. This is about how do you optimize your company as well. How do you meet new demands, but also how do you produce in a in a more resource um, effective way? And so I think in, in that sense, that's why it's such a big draw. And then if I may add to this very long answer to your <laughs> one little question, I think it also is important that this is a fashion event. 
And I think if you look around the world, you see a lot of other sustainability conventions of different kinds, but it's sustainability first. Yes. And then that attracts a more narrow group of experts who will talk in an expert language to other experts about something really complicated. And we've tried to say that this has to become a more mainstream conversation. If we're going to move the needle, if we're going to move the industry and ultimately also the consumer, it has to become attractive, fashionable, fun, and more easy to grasp. And I think that's also our approach when we put together the program. And that's why it is so diverse. Like you mentioned, Ellen MacArthur, who's, you know, a super, super intelligent, heavyweight woman on the research part in terms of circularity. And then you have one of the most incredible designers, Stella McCartney, who's founded her company on ethical roots. And you have the communicator, Graydon Carter, who's been one of the first, you know, to put green issues on the market, but do it in, a, in an interesting and attractive way. I have that issue that was Vanity Fair's issue, the green issue they did in 2007. And that was very pioneering then, I mean, 10 it years was. ago. It was, yeah. But just to go back a little bit, perhaps for listeners who aren't aware of what COP15 means and what that was. So COP stands for Conference of the Parties, and it's when the United Nations brings together everyone to discuss climate change. And in 2009 in Copenhagen, that was a big one, wasn't it? It was. It was. And I, I don't know if, if it was actually that successful. <laughs> I think we there were expectations. <laughs> we, well, yeah. And, and they, it was they had difficulties in actually signing, you know, a really um, progressful agreement. But they, it was what led into the Paris agreements. And, um, and in that sense, I think every COP has its own purpose. But of course, it's a climate change event and it has a primary focus on, on climate changes. Whereas when you talk about the fashion industry, we have to talk about water, wastewater, um, chemicals, and in particular, the whole social side which is less forefront at the cops. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, it was very clever, but also very surprising and very bold to bring fashion into it at that time, wasn't it? It was, I suppose. And I think that's also why Copenhagen Fashion Summit is the platform it is today, that it is le the leading forum, because it was the first one to do this and do it in this way. I wonder if you might just tell us a bit about the setting. Well, it takes place in the Copenhagen Concert Hall, which is um, a beautiful building that is made for the most exquisite acoustic um, <laughs> experiences of music. But it's also a very, very beautiful uh, room designed by a French architect called Jean Nouvel. And Copenhagen, of course, is also a great frame for a conversation about sustainability. It's placed on the water and... The month of May is often one of the most wonderful months here in Copenhagen. We have very cold winters, but uh, the spring can be very nice. The air is fresh. And then, of course, Denmark is also this little monarchy where we have um, our queen and our crown prince, which is married to a wonderful Australian woman called Mary. And uh, she's fortunately also our patron. So uh, the crown princess is... Uh, is supporting our agenda and has been actually since the very, very beginning. And uh, she's been our patron for almost 10 years now. And she's a very, very strong advocate for the whole sustainability agenda. Oh, she is. And, she's uh, wonderful. And she's, yeah. And she and loves she always, fashion. She actually, I was working at Australian Vogue when she was on the cover just after her wedding. Yeah. And she does love fashion, but I think this is actually why this also resembles so much um, in her is that, she has a very strong opinion also about how we help people out of poverty and inequality is also something that really means a lot to her to fight that. And then she has a very strong voice on gender and on women. And the fashion industry is employing, what, 7,500 million people across the world in some of the world's poorest countries. And the vast majority of those are women. So when we improve the social conditions to do with fashion, we help women. We have helped families and women in particular. And I think that's why this is something that really, you know, resembles well with the Crown Princess. And she always gives a speech that is one of the best at the event. And um, we're expecting her to do that again. You've spoken often about how strongly you believe in the power and scope of fashion. Mm -hmm. 
what is it about fashion that has this power to move conversations forward and also to reach different people? Well, of course, I mean, the fashion industry being one of the world's largest, that in itself is powerful. And if the fashion industry decides to change, even, you know, minor changes will have huge impacts. But the reason I think a lot of other industries sh should make um, partnerships with the fashion industry and look to our side is that fashion is in our ev everyday life. Fashion is something that we all relate to, even people who are not fashionistas and who don't particularly focus on trends. We are affected by what's in fashion. Mm. It's also, I think, the whole mechanism of what's hot or what's not. Why is a person or a brand all of a sudden something we're looking to? I mean, mm. it has an effect on a lot of ways that we perceive what's cool and what's not. That's where I think the fashion industry is one of the most powerful communication tools. And if it decides that we want to promote responsible behavior, to think, to realize that you as an individual actually have an effect on the world with the choices you make, with the purchases you do, with how you act in everyday life. And I think the fashion industry has that potential to actually create powerful individuals and, and powerful citizens of the world. And I think that's where the industry becomes very, very strong and very, very interesting. If we move, we move consumers. And if we move mm. the consumers, we'll move the money. And I think that's when it becomes highly interesting because that's when it's going to make um, the world change. Oh, you sing from my songbook. I mean, it's so true, isn't it? It's just, <laughs> if we can make it cool, yeah, that's really... It sounds like it's so surface driven, but actually it's deep, that stuff. If we can make it uncool to be unsustainable, then there's huge power in that. Yes. And then that will affect how we act in other ways. You know, then it will affect choices we make in other parts of our life. And then it will be like a trickle effect, like a positive domino effect. Love. So, yeah, I think I, in that sense, I think it's um, the fashion industry is one of the world's most powerful, to be honest. The way we tackle it is that we say we need the cool designers to spearhead this. We need the cool brands to be the forefront of this because a general perception could be that sustainable fashion is a little bit brown, nature materials, a little <laughs> bit scratchy maybe even, and very uncool and unsexy. That's a very stereotype. <laughs> maybe a little. But I think it persists a little bit. I mean, I still hear yeah. it to this day, you know, hairy hemp or scratchy, yeah. natural. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, or all brown or um, beige or, you know, no colors, um, no real whites. And I think actually that if we get the cool designers, all the great brands to put forward a sustainable choice for us as consumers, then that would actually make the change. Because most of us would want to honor that. But we don't buy fashion to save the world. When we're at the counter or going out on Saturday, I'm not going to buy, you know, my clothes because I'm thinking I'm saving the world or anything, because then maybe I should, you know, stop buying anything. <laughs> yeah. But I think what it can do is that if it can make us an equally desirable and sexy choice, we will definitely honor those brands who put that forward. And I think that's why we call the Fashion Summit a Fashion Summit. It's not the Copenhagen Sustainability Summit. It's because we want to bring together those leading brands and leading voices because they are going to make this happen and make it interesting and attractive for the consumer as well. Okay, so let's talk about how the Copenhagen Fashion Summit works because it's not just a chance to hear insights from great keynote speakers, is it? I want to talk about the Innovation Forum, which is new, isn't it? Yeah, it's brand new because um, based on the previous many summits, people feedback that they got hugely inspired and then they went home and then it became Monday and then they were sitting there and they were going, okay, so what do I do? I run a um, medium-sized company. I don't have a sustainability department as such. They might have one employee. or But how do I make this whole transition and who can help me do that? And that's why we put together the Innovation Forum. So the Innovation Forum is kind of like a trade show surrounding the summit, which is primarily a plenary stage with keynotes and debates and talks and so on. And the Innovation Forum is this showcase, the, an exhibition space where you can visit all the solution providers or a selected group of them 
who can actually help your company move forward. So this is, it's not a consumer trade show. Uh, so there won't be any ready-made garments that you can go purchase or, or brands that you can sort of tap into, but, but there will be solutions for the companies. People who can help you with a minimizing of water scheme or recycling processes or great new materials and innovations. And, you know, all those who can actually provide some of the solutions that your company need to, to become more sustainable. It's an interesting take. I know that you've got this new idea of speed dating where people can pitch yeah. their ideas. Let's talk a bit about that. We have a format where we're actually borrowing a little bit from the dating industry, which we call speed dating. And it's actually that we have a number of solution providers and then we match make them with some of the participants at the summit. So they are pre-booked meetings. So we get information from the participants size of their companies, what they're looking for, you know, scale and mass, because that has something to do with who do you want to work with in terms of the volumes and whatever your needs are. And then we match make them in the best way possible, like people would do on a dating profile. So I like tall, dark, blah, 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 <laughs> you'll be matched. So it's basically the same. And then we actually have a schedule of about 400 or 450 pre-booked meetings when the summit opens. So these people will be speed dating. They will be meeting short meetings, like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And usually you don't, it doesn't take more time than that to know if you want to move on, <laughs> even on a date. So that's basically that one concept. And then there's the other concept, which is called the pitch stage, which is focusing on all these new innovations and, and you know, the, the lab guys, the technicians, the engineers who's been working on some strange combination that will give us a new material or you know tech solutions that will move something new into the industry and they'll be able to pitch their ideas for the audience so that people can get an insight of some of the new most fresh crazy great innovations now the whole idea behind the ceo agenda give us a taster of what it is and what it seeks to do yeah we're trying to boil things down into something you can actually digest and swallow. I've always said that tackling sustainability is like swallowing an elephant. <laughs> you have to cut it up. Into My goodness, I feel like that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. So you have to cut it up in slices, otherwise you won't be able to digest it. So since uh, last year, we've published something called the Pulse of the Fashion Industry Report in collaboration with Boston Consulting Group. The data is based from the Sustainable Apparel Coalition's um, great many collections of data from their member group. So it's a whole new data set and a whole new approach where we're looking at how is the general industry doing on sustainability. So it's the first measurement we have. And the first time the Pulse of the Fashion Industry report came out, we scored a 32 out of a, a 100 so we made this score from zero to 100 and we scored 32 and it was focusing on where are all the challenges and where are all the levers and where can we improve. We do know that a lot of CEOs will never read that report. They will. Don't tell me that. I think that they will. I mean, I know that journalists read them. We're living in a time where people's attention span is becoming smaller and smaller. So we thought, okay, how do we process some of all that content and data. And uh, on top of that, we have a group of strategic partners behind the Global Fashion Agenda and the Summit, which are um, some of the leading you know, companies in this field. It's Caring, it's H&M, it's Target, it's Bestseller, it's Lian Fung, and also the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. And we thought, why don't we put their minds together, together with ours and the content of the Pulse Report, and make a document that is actually more highlighting what would be the most important things for any CEO in fashion to focus on right now. Anybody can access. All we do is for free and it's up there and it's open for everyone. Which is gold. There's another part of the structure of the conference that I find very exciting. I do a lot of work with students and talk a lot in universities. And, you know, every time I meet fashion students, I then get my fix of hopefulness for the future because I really yeah. think that there's a new way of approaching sustainability that we didn't have when I was younger you know I meet students full of great ideas that constantly surprise and delight me I'm I just was speaking to a couple last night and I know that as part of the summit you have the youth summit and 
I'm just going to say this for Australian listeners that you might like to know that Robin Healy, who is the fabulous dean of the School of Fashion and Textiles at RMIT in Melbourne, would be bringing three students this year. And I just got off the phone from her, actually, and she was saying how incredible this opportunity is. They only accept 100 students. There's no quotas. You have to apply and get in on the strength of your brilliance. And so these three students will get to come along to the Youth Summit. Mm-hmm. Eva, um, just tell us a little bit about how the Youth Summit works and perhaps with reference to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. This year, we actually have 114 students. We had more than 350 applicants. It was so difficult to choose. So we've broadened the group a little bit. They're going to be tied to the Youth Fashion Summit for two years, this group. They come from 50 countries in the world, and I'm glad that three of them are coming from Australia. And um, they come from both design schools, but also business schools, but also as a new thing, we have engineers and, um, you know, scientists on the map as well. So I think the mix of competences that we're going to bring together is really interesting. And they participate in webinars throughout the year before meeting in Copenhagen uh, now in in May. So they've had a few webinars in since January, which give them, you know, a common language. So they've had some of the same talks and they have a vocabulary and they know what they're talking about. And then when they meet in Copenhagen, they're going to do a few different things. One of them is that they're going to look into the CEO agenda and they're going to challenge it. And then, as you said, we have a very close collaboration with the UN so the Youth Fashion Summit has been picked out as, as one of three key partnership projects for the Global Compact Program. And the students are going to work on the Sustainable Development Goals. I'm guessing that you would have loved this kind of opportunity when you were a student. Oh, yes. It would have been amazing. And I think what we see every year is that The feedback from the participants at the summit when they've heard what the students have to put forward, they go on stage, all of them, and they put forward their demands and their thoughts, is that that's what's giving people goosebumps. Yeah, so it puts the hairs on the back of my neck up. I mean, I just think it's so great. Yeah. Yeah. But we also do these sessions. So while the Youth Fashion Summit takes place, it's a few days before the actual Fashion Summit. So they have three days of workshops and seminars. They also do a pitch session where they are pitching their ideas to actual companies. And I tell you, the lineup of companies who wants to Mm -hmm. participate in that session is so long. And we have to be very, you know, particular who gets to meet the students because they are the most attractive guests we have. I mean, everybody wants to find the new talents and and meet next generation. And we actually had feedback from some of the companies that were there last year that they've had the most expensive consultancy agencies trying to crack their water problems for years. And then they met three 25-year-old students who did it in seven minutes. Wowie. That's what comes out of it as well. Oh, it's um, so good. Yeah. So th- that is definitely one of the most interesting parts. Let's rewind, Eva. I want to know about you when you were younger. Where did you grow up and what were you like as a little girl? I grew up in Aarhus. It's the second largest city of uh, Denmark, but it's very small. It's like 250,000 people. And I was the oldest of a group of three. Um, I have two younger daughters and I was a very active, very busy person. I had my first uh, toolbox um, from my dad when I was about eight. So I've been able to build everything I want. And what kind I, of build? Build what? Like Anything. I don't know, like a dollhouse or... Yeah, so I've been able to make what I wanted. I had um, curtains in my room that was um, theater curtains. So I put up shows. <laughs> I yes. did film, you know, <laughs> writing my own scripts, starring them. Um, so, yeah, I was very busy. And then I wanted to become a hairdresser. Oh, goodness, did you? I didn't know that. I know that you did become a TV presenter. Yeah, it wasn't anything I wanted, to be honest. Really? Yeah. I think I wanted to become a hairdresser and then at some point I wanted to become an architect. But you know what? You do have great hair. I mean, I was watching your TED talk and I was like, Eva has great hair. (laughs) It's obviously still with you. (laughs) And then, but then at some point I stumbled upon the Chaos Pilots, which was this project manager's education that was um, being developed for the first time. It's a business school 
but it's also management uh, education. And, uh, and I just thought that sounded so incredible. I read that folder that they did and it just resembled any, everything I wanted to be. And you were supposed to be 21 to apply. And I was only 19 and I was like, I just have to do it. I read about it a little bit and I wanted to ask you more about it. So it was set up by, tell me about the man who established it. Well, yeah, he's called Uffe Elbeck and he's now actually in the Danish parliament. He's got a, a new political party called the Alternative. And I guess that really resembles him a lot to be alternative. So this is an alternative business school and it was very ambitious and setting a new benchmark for how you develop education. So the approach was to focus on the whole human being. So we had to do physical exercises every day. So body and mind had to be as one. And we had to do an equal part of theory teaching, you know, reading and studying theories and then doing actual projects. So we did actual projects with actual budgets and and everything during the education. Just even thinking about how we were discussing how the students will interact at the Youth Summit. It's similar, isn't it? Because it's all about rethinking how we learn and and how how we make progress. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I went to a school that was basically sit in the corner and recite Latin. (laughs) You (laughs) know, that wasn't when I hear you say we did the mind and body being one. I mean, that was not how I was raised. I wish it was. Yeah. Yeah. Your parents were progressives and socialists and political, mm-hmm. weren't they? How did their values impact on you when you were growing up? Well, I think the fact that they both still are very active, I mean, even just in their local community, when it comes to how people are living and thriving and how kids are growing up. And so I, they've always taught me to play an active part. So I think the worst thing you could be in our home was to be inactive. I mean, to not care was worse than, you know, at some point I dyed my hair black and I I was carrying a knife and I was wearing military clothes and they were like, yay, that's a great expression. What? You know, you <laughs> couldn't do anything to disturb them other than being passive. Yeah. So if, if, if I was passive, not active, not raising my voice, not doing anything with my life, that was the most provocative thing to do. So uh, I think that's why they encouraged me so much to to take an active part. And that's why I, when I realized the impact of the fashion industry, which I accidentally was working in, I found my path, so to speak. Um, so I think they've had a really, really important influence on why I am like I am today and why I'm driven the way I am. You said that you accidentally got into fashion. So after you graduated, you landed a job as a TV presenter. What sort of show was it? Like a, a music or a fashion show? Or Well, the first one was a debate program and the next one was a fashion show. It was like a magazine program and I was interviewing designers and talking about trends. But I didn't know anything about it more than any young person who's interested in, in life as such. So I was asking the questions like, what's going to be modern next season or, you know, <laughs> Stuff like that. So, but then, you know, in time you grow into it and you know more and more. And then I got into fashion magazines. Well, you were the editor in chief of the biggest fashion magazine in Denmark. You're a woman, right? Yeah. Yes. For about five years. And I also did another magazine prior to that. So I kind of grew into the fashion industry by accident, I feel. And then all of a sudden you've been there for a number of years and then that's your métier, you know, then that's your topic. And I've always wanted to push it or move it or do something about it. So from 2005, I was part of inaugurating the Danish Fashion Institute. And we built at the same time also Copenhagen Fashion Week, which is now, you know, Northern Europe's biggest fashion platform. Absolutely. And you were the CEO of that Fashion Week for a decade. Yeah, for 10 years. Yeah. So obviously you're leading conversations inside the fashion industry and you're pioneering within that realm of creating fashion weeks and bringing business to Copenhagen for fashion. But at what point did you make that connection between fashion and sustainability? Well, actually, I I think you mentioned that Graydon Carter was behind the first green issue in 2007 with Vanity Fair. I think it was also in 2007 that it came to my mind. I mean, I think everybody always knew that fashion was challenged when it came to social implications like child labor, something we've heard of. And, you know, but I don't think it was ever really 
clear to me how big the industry is and how much um, the environmental impact of the fashion industry was until around that time, 2007, 2008. We started working with it and we did some seminars trying to raise awareness in the fashion industry here in Denmark. Oh, and did they, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, not many people came. <laughs> I mean, we did other seminars about sales or how do you export to Germany or something where people you know, showed up in big numbers. But when we talked about the environmental impacts and everything, people really, they thought it was maybe not something we should talk too loud about. <laughs> or they thought it was, I also think people thought that it was tremendously niche. Yeah. Or that it perhaps wasn't the preserve of design or retail, which yeah. of course we know that it is. Yeah. Gosh, you were really doing things before everyone else. Did you question yourself at that time or did you see a very clear path moving forward and just think, I'm going there and people need to come along? Well, I think going back to what we spoke about earlier about my parents' influence, about being active and playing an active role in society. And they've always been very engaged in political movements. They're the 68 generation. And so I think it was, it just made sense inside me, you know? So I don't think it was a very conscious choice. I think it resonated with something that meant something deeper inside me, that this made sense to me to put efforts into this. And I have worked a lot, and I, I'm also a parent. And uh, sometimes I could, you know, lie in bed and think about, you know, the fashion week coming up or, you know, difficulties with people being upset about the show schedule that I gave them. You know, they got... Thursday afternoon, they wanted Friday morning or whatever, you know, things like that. And I was thinking, what am I doing? What am I spending my life on? What's important here? So I think when I, when I met this agenda on the sustainability path and, you know, the fact that we as an industry had this potential to actually create positive change more than profit, but also for people and planet, that just resonated with me in a different way. So it wasn't, I think, a conscious decision. I didn't see a path as such. I just went with it by instinct. May I ask you about the Danish aspect? I mean, I don't know if this is actually not right, but I feel like maybe in the Nordic countries and in Denmark in particular, there's a greener kind of feeling or a, I don't know, is that wrong? Tell me, maybe that's no, a perception right. that we have from the outside, but how accurate no. is it? No, I think there is. I think maybe we can't say it's Danish, but we could call it Nordic or Scandinavian, actually. I think... The five Nordic countries have always had a cultural history of taking responsibility for, for more than just our own backyard. Um, we have a social welfare system. and You also, I mean, we read about lots of innovations when it comes to the environment that come out of these countries. And also, which I'm always interested in, you seem to do well on the happiness indexes too. So it's like actually by giving back and by, I guess, by taking responsibility and by taking care of your environment and what's around you, nature-wise as well as people, it makes for a, a better standard of living, but also a better feeling about life. I mean, that might be rose-tinted glasses. I want to believe that, but what do yeah. you think? No, I think you're very right. I think it, it nails it down in many ways. I, I would rather live in a country where the polarization between the richest and the poorest is not too big. You Same. know, I'd rather live in a country where where everybody's good and comfortable, where you don't have poverty, because then it, you will have less violence, you'll have less criminals, you'll have less difficulties with people not feeling well. So, so the better we all thrive, the better a country it is to live in. Absolutely. I mean, yes, we, that seems elementary and obvious, but actually it's mm -hmm. funny that it's not the way everyone tries to do business or to live, is it? No, I mean, it's, people are just, you know, keen on getting more, 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 more to myself. Actually, you mentioned more, more, more. I mean, I know that let's talk about one of my favourite subjects, which I know is one of yours too, which is about resources and about scarcity and about even garbage as a resource. Mm. Obviously, the fashion industry is now waking up to this a little bit more and we're having more and more conversations about circularity. But let's talk about that, about resource scarcity is potentially an opportunity that we need to grasp as an industry. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think the great thing about all these conversations is that although they can come from a philanthropic point of view where you think, I want to do good for people and we have, for instance, water scarcity and we have more than a billion people around the globe who don't have access to clean drinking water on a daily basis. 
I mean, that could be your starting point. But the great thing about this is that it's also a huge business opportunity to optimize the usage of water. And that's why I think it will become, you know, a big thing because we can't expect all <laughs> you know, CEOs of the global leading companies to just want to do it for the better of people, but then they can do it for the better of profit. And then it will benefit people <laughs> in the end as well. And I think the whole talk about circularity is so interesting because that again, you know, if we can get a, a large enough volume of textiles into circularity, we can minimize the production of new virgin fibers, which will be highly interesting when it comes to environmental implications. But it can also address, you know, an agenda for every consumer about recycling, which is something we need to do not only in textiles, but with everything we have in our homes and in our daily lives. And that garbage is gold and that we can put it into um, reuse and rethink. And it, it, it's also been proof that it's now been the course of so many new business models, people renting clothes, reselling clothes, redesigning what's already out there. And I mean, if I look at my daughter who's 16, she's navigating in that in a, in a completely natural way. How does she feel about it? Well, she just bought a Gucci phone cover and she's already just sold it. She's had it for about four months and now she's reselling it because now it's still before it goes out of style, that particular look. And it's just so easy. They just navigate on all platforms and they, for her, fashion or stuff is something that she uses for a while and then she resells it to somebody else and then they do and then she buys something else that's vintage. And it's just such an organic approach to having, you know, products in your life that you don't cling to it and you don't have to own it and you don't have to sit on it. It's something you use and then you pass it on. Well, there were some recent stats that came out that suggested that the resale market will eclipse the fast fashion market within 10 years. I mean, it's possible. It's about reinventing our whole system, but it's possible. Yeah. yeah. We have uh, Julie Rainwright as one of the speakers of the summit this time. She's from The Real Real, which has become a huge business in the US. And we also have the CEO of Vestiaire Collective, which is also a super interesting, you know, global platform where they only sell like high-end fashion products and they vouch for the quality and the, and the authenticity of products. So I will just take that opportunity to say to listeners, if you haven't had a chance to listen to the episode of this podcast with Fanny Moison from Vestiaire Collective, it's beautiful. It's really good, that interview. But it's interesting because the fashion industry was for a long time very shy of even engaging in conversations around secondhand. But now we're mm -hmm. seeing huge growth in these businesses. So brands are, are beginning to think, how can we engage with these new models? Yeah, yeah, we see it. I mean, one of the a great Danish brand called Designers Remix have just taken up that challenge. So what they do is they ask consumers to come in with old styles of Remix and then they redesign them. And then it's called Pre-Loved, which I like. I think it's a great way of... So they actually redesign the garments for that customer? Yeah, yeah. So they take, yeah. And then people can purchase them again. So they get a voucher or something worth something when they bring in old designers remix styles and then they will remake them redesign them and they can be sold as new garments um, in the store again how interesting i'm going to look that up we'll share some links in the show notes but then eva there is of course the fact that we haven't got there yet and i'm thinking about that report from the ellen MacArthur foundation that shows that less than one percent of clothing is recycled into new clothing right now i mean it's you sort of feel like because there are so many conversations around this that the number would be much higher, but we're not there yet, are we? No, we're not there yet at all. And I think that's why the summit is um, is also engaging a level of policymakers because we garbage collecting is a very different thing from country to country, who controls it and owns it, so to speak. So we do need to talk to governments as well on uh, how do we get the collection going. Right now, People in Denmark, for instance, we dispose most of our old clothes with organizations like the Red Cross. Of course, they also have a business model when it comes to collecting garments because they sell the best of it in stores. And they sometimes also distribute some of the clothes to Africa or other places. But other than that, I don't have a bin in my courtyard where I can dispose my textiles. I have a bin for almost anything, plastic, metal, electronics 
cardboard, anything, even bio, but I don't have a textiles bin. So we still need governments and local city councils to help us when it comes to setting up a collecting system. Yes, because we, we do. need the volume. We need the volumes to go into system. You can go to H&M. You can also go to Zara across the world and dispose your garments. But we still need a bigger scheme for that as well. And then there's all the new technologies that are still needed because a lot of fabrics are still blends. And blends that are mixing different fibers are, are more difficult and some of them cannot be recycled. So that's why when we are talking to the fashion brands about designing for circularity, there is some decisions that designers make when they decide how a particular garment should look. And that is also the choices of the materials that they use when they put it together. So we're back to the young, new designers and new yeah. voices and the students who are going to change the way we do this entire thing, right? Yeah, but also the existing designers. I mean, the existing brands have to... I shouldn't be so quick to get rid of them, should I? Uh, no, because, I mean, they have to make a, a circular decision when they decide how their collection will look. Yeah. Is this a recyclable collection? Can the parts be separated? Can we recycle those fibers and, and so on? So it, the circularity uh, approach is the decision and not just about collecting stuff and recycling fibers. I want to just finish up by addressing a couple of big words. And I think they're very salient to what we were just talking about, about designers currently working in the industry who are going to have to look to new ways of doing things. But the big words are transparency and vulnerability, because I think it's interesting, isn't it, to really be transparent. You've got to admit your mistakes and your shortfalls. Why are these two words so important? Well, I think you, you said one of the things is that transparency is about showing what's there. And I think also be that we are at a stage now where companies are more comfortable also showing what they don't know how to do. I think we need to be honest with each other and actually talk about what's difficult um, because this is not easy. And sometimes in particular media and press is actually what's keeping most companies not talking is because they're afraid that if they talk about what they do, the media will fall over them and say, but what about this? Or what about that? And what about the buttons? Or what about the lining? Or what about, you know, mm. and sustainability is a journey and it takes a long, long time. And I mean, even just to give you an example, to go from conventionally produced cotton to organic production, it takes the farmer three years before his field doesn't have, the, you know, a high percentage of pesticides. So just the transition from the cotton producer is mm. a three-year process. Mm. And of course, I mean, also for a fashion company to move into different production facilities, to put pressure on the existing ones, to create the change that is needed is, is, takes a long time. And it, it requires a collaborative effort. The fashion industry might be Danish for some brands or Australian for other brands, but we produce globally. And most companies don't own their own factories. So we need to collaborate with the producers in Bangladesh, in China, in India, in Pakistan, in Honduras, and all those places where most of the production are taking place. And we need to educate them and we need to get them up to speed. That's why transparency and vulnerability is very, very key. This is beyond competition. This is where companies are coming together and beyond a competitive agenda, talk about what they can do share knowledge, share innovations, because nobody can do this on their own. I mean, not even H&M or Inditex. None of the big ones can do this on their own. We all need to have a collaborative effort. And then there's also involving the consumer. So if we should finish off on, you know, also just highlighting what every person can do, because we also, we as individuals play a pivotal role in this. I mean, we have to start caring for what we buy. Look into the labels. Look what it's made of. Consider with yourself what you need, how much you need, how much you're going to wear it. I think how much we wash, dry clean and so on is also, you know, a huge part of the environmental impact of fashion. What do you do with it when you're done with it? Is it just hanging there or do you put it into afterlife with someone else? And I think also we as consumers have to consider that if we only pay, I don't know, $10 for a T-shirt, you know, the way it had to the world will be different than if we 
you know, maybe buy less and pay more. Because that also price also has something to say. And we as consumers have to be aware of that. It's interesting that you raise that because Osola de Castro from Fashion Revolution, she talks about the consumer as being part of the supply chain, which I think is quite a lovely idea because it does bring us into it, doesn't it? It says, this is not us and them. This is not big, bad fashion and some bad fashion consumers. This is Mm. a whole world that's interconnected and that we all have a part to play. Definitely. And of course, I mean, my organization on a daily basis, we tackle the industry. That's what my focus is. I'm in dialogue with the fashion brands and the suppliers and so on, on how do we improve this? How do we move the needle? What's the technologies? How can we collaborate to push interesting, sustainable products into the market? But the consumers do hold the power. In the end, the money will make this move faster or slower. And that, on that sense, you know, the, the consumer is key. You know, what we spend our money on and what we do with it and how we act and what we talk about is the most important thing in this. Oh, Eva, I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased (laughs) that we got to do this. I'm so grateful. Thank you. And I can't wait to be there. Me too. I can't wait to meet you in person. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you Because I love you